0: I am your host, Andy Storch, and this is a show where we can come together to starve our fears, to follow our dreams, and to fulfill our true potential. This is a show for people who want to get the absolute most out of life, to live life intentionally and leave nothing behind with no regrets. And I am right there with you, my friends, learning and growing every day, trying to get better and figure out how to get the absolute most out of life. Today, I have a guest for you that is going to give you some things to think about and definitely help us on that journey. Today, my guest is Michael O'Brien. And the interesting thing about Michael is he said his last bad day was on July 11th, 2001, and that was the day he was struck head-on by a speeding SUV while out on a bike ride in New Mexico. He tells that story in this interview, and it is chilling to hear what he went through and inspiring to hear how he overcame that challenge. We talk in this interview about that bad day and that story and what Michael has been doing since then, how he became more intentional with his life. We talk about the importance of gratitude and mindset and how you can live your best life possible using mindset shifts, courage, resilience, and gratitude. So if you're looking for ways to improve your mindset and take your life to the next level, this is it. Here we go. Hey, Michael, welcome to the Andy Storch Show.
1: Andy, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be on, a huge fan. So I I can't wait to get into it with you. Thank you so much.
0: I love all the stuff that you've been doing and you have such an interesting story and background and message um, that I know will be beneficial for our listeners. And uh, originally, I was going to think about this as an interview, but as you said before we started uh, recording, we're just two dudes talking about making the world a better place. Absolutely. That's what we're doing. It's what pretty it's cool. all about. I love yeah. it. Love it. Uh, well, before we get to the, the nitty gritty of uh, how to make the world a better place, and there are many ways we can go with that, um, but I know you're, you're helping a lot of people in that area. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your background and how you got
1: to where you are today. Well, I grew up in the be- a beautiful part of Rochester, New York, upstate New York. And then I found my way down to Virginia for school and then up to Washington, D.C. And that's where I met my wife. That's where I started the early part of my career. And then from there, we moved up to New Jersey a place that we never thought we'd go because like who goes to New Jersey? Like it's a right. place that it's a place that you want to leave, not go right. to. But that's where the job was. And I'd say the early part of my life was a lot of just doing what I thought society wanted me to do, right? I thought I was playing by society's role. Go to college, get a degree, find a gig, marry a girl, have kids, climb the corporate ladder. And I was playing that game fairly well. You know, I was doing just that. But I wasn't necessarily all that mindful or aware of how I was living my life. I didn't necessarily... Nowadays, we talk about purpose, right? All the time, like, what's your purpose? Like, I had no idea what my purpose was back then. My purpose was to, to play the game that society wanted me to play.
0: Have fun and go to work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then I realized, well, work's work. And I sort of got caught into a bit of a trap of believing I had to play Superman at work Because Mm -hmm. I was a leader at work, I thought I had to have all the answers. And I was playing Superman at home because I was the provider. I was the guy. I was the dad. And I was doing a pretty poor job in terms of stress management. I was pouring a lot of stress inside and trying to have an outward-facing appearance. Like, hey, we're all good. Like, everything's fine. I'm calm on the outside. But inside, there was like this storm of brewing. And eventually, if you keep on pouring stress inside of you, it builds up over time. And eventually, it's got to go somewhere. And for me, it went somewhere. Where did it go? Well, it went um, went into my core until, you know, sort of the nitty gritty, like my last bad day, that cycling accident. So I was out in New Mexico for a classic corporate meeting. Many of your listeners would probably have been to one of these in the past. You go out on Monday, you fly back on Friday, and in between they try to torture you with PowerPoint. So <laughs> uh, so that was like, it's the death by PowerPoint yeah. New Mexico edition, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we went out there for a big like, off-site team building, and I decided to bring my bicycle out because I've been an avid cyclist really since I was about 10 years old. And I thought, oh, this is going to be really awesome. I'll go out in New Mexico. I've never been across the state off the list I've ridden my bike in. Yeah. And on July 11, 2001, which now I call my last bad day, I was on my little loop. I had a, a two-mile loop out the back of the hotel, up the main drag. And on the fourth lap, I came around a Bend. And a Ford Explorer was fully, like 100%, Andy, in my lane, heading right at me. Mm. And I was like, Oh my God. I said some other things yeah. too. And it was it was just so surreal. Like I couldn't move fast enough. I was like, certainly it's going to move. Certainly it's going to move. And then it yeah. didn't move. And I didn't move out of the way fast enough. And I remember the sound of me hitting his grill into the windshield I went, smashed a hole through that, the screech of his brakes, and then the thud I made as I came to the asphalt below. Like I remember that today as vividly as like it would happen like yesterday. Oh, man. And of course, you would imagine, your listeners would imagine, like, I got knocked unconscious then, and then the EMTs finally arrived. There were actually EMTs at the hotel. So I was very fortunate for that. And when I regained my consciousness, I asked them the question that only another cyclist can really appreciate. I was like, how's my bike? (laughs) Right. So... It was my really weak attempt to use a little humor to cut the tension because yeah. in that moment, I was like, oh, things ain't good. Right. Like, I could tell. Like The EMTs were awesome. They saved my life. Yeah. But I knew, like, just, well, just the thought of me moving seemed painful. Like, I yeah. knew like, my life was in balance.
0: Yeah. And
1: I was trying to do things to sort of, you well, know, take me away from reality by asking sort of a, a stupid question about how's my bike. But yeah. it's a question that our, all of us cyclists ask after sure. we crash. Right. So yeah. it's natural.
0: Yeah. You spent a lot of money on that bike. You spend a lot of time on it. It's your baby. And, uh, you know, you care about yourself, but you care about the bike too. So you want to know how, how did they respond to that?
1: I think they, well, they looked at me like, maybe we should check them for a, for a traumatic brain injury. They're yeah. like, your uh, bike's fine, sir. And back then I didn't have any ID on me. Right. So okay. I, there was no road ID back then. And I was trying to let them know like who I was and why I was in, New Mexico, and I was yeah. I thought I was being really clear, but I I wasn't. Like mm. I, I got the phone numbers wrong. I was getting stuff wrong because clearly I'd been like just trashed by the SUV. Uh, but I I just remember them going back to work, and then the work I was doing was trying to will myself not to fall asleep because I thought mm. if I fell asleep, I might lose all control. So I yeah. I was there like Michael don't fall asleep, stay awake, don't fall asleep, stay awake. Because I really did, I had this ridiculous notion that if I stayed awake, I could manage the situation.
0: Yeah, you'd be fine.
1: I'd be fine. And that's how I was living my life. You know, in in retrospect, I was trying to control things at work, trying to control things at home. And when you try to control and resist or restrict things, you don't get a really good byproduct out of that. It's not a long-term strategy. And yeah, as ridiculous as it sounds, I was trying to like stay awake so I can control things.
0: Yeah. Now, did you have kids at that time too?
1: Yeah. My two daughters were really young. Uh, I was three and a half and great, Grady, my youngest daughter, was seven months. So they called my wife and they were like, hey, you know, Michael's been in an accident. We think he's broken both legs. He should really come out. And mm. she's like, and I write about this in the book. She's like, he's been in other crashes before because I was right. racing my bike. And you know i got two young kids back here i'm right. like trying to run a house send them back here i'm sure he's yeah, fine. like put some gauze on it like an ace bandage and send him back home right yeah. and so the first call she was like i ain't coming out like i'm too busy the second call came from a different person at my company she's like listen I'm, like things are hectic here right yeah then the third call came from like the highest of high people at my yeah. company and they're like you should really come out and that phone call she took a little notice she was like oh and then she asked this like ever important question. Well, how long should I pack for? Right. So if I have to pack a bag. How, like, what should I pack? Yeah. Am I coming out for a day? Am I coming out for more than a day? And they were like, well, you should come out for probably at least a week. And again, they didn't know the extent, extent of my injuries back then. But that, yeah. that response was, to her was like, oh, this is more than just two broken legs. Yeah. This is serious. This is serious. But she didn't know how serious it was. What we later learned is that when the truck hit me, the SUV hit me, I broke a whole bunch of everything. But the big injury was when my left femur shattered, it just like Mm. exploded. And then a bone fragment lacerated my femoral artery. So in essence, I was bleeding out in the middle of the desert. The doctors told my wife after the first surgery, By the time she got out there to Albuquerque, had I been 10 years older or not in shape, I certainly would have died before I even got to the hospital. Wow. And then the first surgery is over, 12 hours-ish, 34 units of blood product. And then our world got turned upside down, like in a a moment, like here we are, like a family, two young girls. And then you're like, okay, what do you do now?
0: Yeah, so I know this would be sort of life- Altering for anybody to go through that, and um, you know, such a traumatic experience and all the injuries. But a lot of people would probably like put it back together, suck it up, and, and maybe just go back to work and say, okay, maybe I won't ride a bike anymore, but I've got to get back to work and take care of my family. But this changed the course of your life, right? So where did things go from there?
1: Well, where it went from there. So the commitment I made is they put me onto the helicopter to take me to the trauma center at the University of New Mexico was this i was like hey if you live michael you got to stop chasing happiness you got to have a different type of life like become more purposeful i didn't use that word back then but i i wanted to live a different life and stop chasing the happiness that i was trying to chase so when i came out of the icu the doctors started to share more about my accident the driver had to revoke license they started telling me about a lifetime of dependencies limitations all the things that i wouldn't be able to do anymore including Riding, which was a big part of my life because I had part of my identity was wrapped up in, hey, I'm an athlete, like I'm a healthy guy, like I was 33 at the time. And I went really dark pretty quickly because, you know, when people paint that type of picture for you in the spirit that we go where our eyes go, everything got dark. I got frustrated. I got bitter. I got angry. And I stayed there for a while until I realized, and they eventually flew me back to New Jersey for more surgery. And then I went to the rehabilitation hospital and there I was like, Hey, if you're really going to become the person you want to become like the best husband you can be, just sort of the best, the best version of you, right. Uh, You do you right. Then I knew I had to shift my mindset. Like I had a whole bunch of like negative mojo in my backpack as I approached every rehab session, because I thought, The world was so unfair. Like, how could this happen to me? Like, why do bad things happen to good people? And I was not accepting reality. I was still trying to argue with it. And reality wins that argument, right? right? But I had moments. So that was a big aha that I knew I had to shift my mindset. But after I left the hospital, going sort of back to the work question, I really did spend a lot of time thinking about okay, what do you do now? Like, you almost lost your life. Am I supposed to go backpacking into Nepal? and like trek across the world and find myself. And I thought, well, maybe that's what you do. But then I realized that wasn't necessarily the most responsible thing to do because I was a provider for my family. Yeah, still a wife and kids, right? You bet. And so I decided that I was going to live a life with intentionality and live a life of gratitude and with purpose and return to my job, my corporate environment, but do so on my own terms that I could grow my career in that way. And that was fundamental. I don't think I would have ever gotten to the executive suite at my company if it wasn't for that shift in mindset. Because with my accident, I, to your point, I could have gone either way. I could have gone, took a left turn and gone darker or taken a different path and tried to find the meaning of, of the accident, why it happened, and the real opportunity that came with my accident and right. I decided to take that path but it wasn't necessarily a light switch moment it wasn't linear it, it took a lot of effort
0: yeah i mean it's uh this is a bit simplistic but it's making that shift from life happens to you to life happens for you right like this happened to me and now i'm defined by this and i'm going to be on crutches or a wheelchair and i'm not going to ever ride a bike again and i'm going to limp around work and take sympathy from people or this is part of my journey and i'm going to leverage this and i'm going to live life intentionally and go back and build my career and get back on a bike, which I'm assuming you did because you told me you have a room full of bike stuff now.
1: Yeah, so it took me a while to get back on a bike. So it was about 13 months. And so this was this is the value of coaching and leaders who push your buttons from time to time, right? Because you know leaders nurture and coach and develop, but the good leaders know which buttons to push. So the scene was, I had just come out of like a major surgery that gave me enough flexion in my left leg to bend it enough to get on the bike. And so without this surgery, and we went into the surgery knowing that if something bad happened during the surgery and my bypass graph, because with the femoral artery tear, they had to do a bypass, almost like a after you have a heart attack type of bypass. If something happened to that bypass graph, they would have had to amputate my leg above the knee. And so we went into that surgery with a lot of risk. So we came out of it in flying colors. My surgeon did an awesome job. So I was rehabbing. And so there was like a portal of opportunity, like I could eventually get back on the bike. And so I was doing sort of the comfort zone stuff of going to rehab and trying to work out and get better and work on my flexion. And my physical therapist saw a moment where she was like, I'm going to push his buttons. And she said one Friday, she goes, you can't come back to therapy until you try to get back on your bike. And I was like, no, yeah, no, you can't do this, Laura. Mm. I was, I'm the patient. I have healthcare. Like, I'm paying. Like, the customer is right. always right. And the thing is, I was nervous. Although I, I wanted to get back on the bike because it was a sense of normalcy, I was scared to get back on the bike. Of course. But here's the thing I wasn't scared by what a lot of people would think I'd be scared about, like getting hit by another car. Yeah. I was scared it's almost like that the feeling you feel if you're trying to lose weight and you're about to step on the scale. Mm. And you know you need to step on the scale, but you're scared to step on the scale because you know the scale ain't going to lie to you. The mm-hmm. scale is going to give you reality. Like you can argue with yourself after the shower, like, yeah, I'm looking good, right? Yeah. Like, And the jeans fit a little bit better, right? Yeah. But once you get on the scale, it's like, no, nah, you've only lost two pounds. And for me, getting back on the bike was almost like getting on the scale because I knew I knew I had made a lot of progress, but I knew I had so much more progress to make and I didn't want to face that reality. That's what I was most scared about. Like this journey towards getting back to or getting to who I could become was going to be so much longer than maybe I was telling myself. Mm. I, and change takes a while, right? And so... Uh, She she pressed my buttons. I drove home from therapy. I was all mad. I was a little petulant. I went to my wife. I was like, can you believe what she said? She just... And she was like, well, when are we going to get back on the bike? So she knew me pretty pretty well. The next day, we drove to an industrial park. It was my first moment to get back on the bike. My balance was off because my left leg, as a result of this accident, is now shorter than my right. Mm. But I was doing some laps around this industrial park, and I decided to go back out onto the road, a road that I'd ridden a million times. And I turned onto the road, and I'm like 50 feet into the ride, Andy, and I could feel something coming up behind me. And I looked behind my left shoulder, and wouldn't you know it, it was a white SUV. mm the same color, the bigger version of the Ford Explorer. So the Ford ex- Exhibition. Exhibition, yeah. And it was coming, it was going super fast. And I was like, oh my God, universe, like, is this a test or what? Like, yeah. so I held onto the handlebars. I held my breath. I, I think I closed my eyes <laughs> and, and it passed me and I opened my eyes. I think I did that first and sort of eased up on the handlebars. And in that moment, I realized, okay, I can do this. Like I mm. got past that first big truck passing me and I wouldn't have done it that weekend unless my physical therapist really pushed my buttons. So mm. I have a lot of gratitude for, towards her with, for her uh, because of that. But yeah, that was the first ride back. And then from there, I just tried to make every ride a little bit better, a little bit further, maybe a little bit faster. Mm. And eventually with that type of mentality, pedal stroke by pedal stroke, I eventually got back into bike racing, which is one of my passions.
0: Oh, wow, that's fantastic. And um, such a huge accomplishment to to overcome that and and to get back into that. And you overcame so many challenges. You, you made this comment that you made a commitment, you shifted your mindset, made a commitment to live intentionally. And then you went out and achieved these goals like getting back on the bike, getting back into racing, moving up into senior leadership in the company you worked for, and then ultimately becoming a coach. What does it mean to live intentionally? And what is it that holds so many people back from living really a life that they could or would want to live and achieving their goals?
1: Yeah, great question, Andy. I think for me, it was having a foundation with my values. In the early days, we didn't talk about values and leading with your values and all that jazz, right? we, We think it's commonplace. It should be commonplace now. So we we tend to think that was commonplace even back then, back in like when we turned into the new century, but I had no clue what my values were. Again, I was sort of just playing by society's rules. So coming out of the accident, I got really clear in terms of the values I wanted to honor, not only at work, but in my life and setting up my priorities and getting really good at saying no. You know, I know there's, you get on the internet, there are people like, oh, it's a year of saying yes. And there's a year of saying no. And like, what should you do? Should you follow your purpose or should you follow your passion? And right. it's so confusing. I'm like, I don't know which to follow. What's your word for the year? Yeah, what's the word for the year? <laughs> and, you know, it's just like things you shouldn't say, things you should say. And for me though, it was really about saying no to the things that wouldn't put me in a position to honor my value. So I wanted to say yes to those things. Like, so I wanted to show up in my corporation being truer to who I was, like not necessarily taking on the personality of the people above me. Like, you know, if I was gonna be a leader, I wanted to lead in my, in my way. And, and certainly one has to assimilate within a company's culture. So you can't be way out in left field. But I wanted to bring my own personality to it. Like if I was gonna show up at work, and if work takes so much of our time, I wanted to do it in that way. I wanted to be present with my family. So for me, it was really getting clear around what my vision was and understanding the values I wanted to honor and then prioritizing my life with intention on doing just that, like stepping into my vision, stepping into my values. And along the way, I think a big cornerstone in sort of an intentional life is making sure that we have that cornerstone of gratitude. And again... Back before my accident, I didn't know anything about gratitude. I was like, what's gratitude? Like, like, you know, a gratitude practice, let alone a meditation practice, right? We, Thanks to TED, we know about gratitude, we know about vulnerability and stuff. Yep. But through my recovery, i found just the power of gratitude in helping me shift my perspective towards the things that are awesome in my life. And even some of the struggle, you know, micro to macro, because that really helped me. that was one of the big things that allowed me to move away from this mindset of i only see the things i can't do and don't have anymore to mm. cherishing the things that i still have and yeah. it also gave me the power to label july 11th as my last bad day cuz what i realized that every day my wife and my daughters are in my life and i hit the you know i put my head on the pillow at night how could i ever label that as a bad day hmm Right, Because there was one saying that I was given during my recovery by someone who I consider a mentor. He's like, Michael, you have to remember that all the events in your life are neutral until you label them. And you get to choose your labels. So you get to choose whether or not this is a bad day or a good day or what have you. And it sort of ties back into like a Viktor Frankl quote around no, we're not the makeup of our events in our lives, but how we respond to them in so many words or less. So that notion that all the events in our lives are neutral until we label them was really powerful and, and tied into or married up with gratitude gave me a chance to sort of see life different, which that doesn't mean that my whole life is rainbow skittles and unicorns. Like I still have moments of sadness and frustration and, and all that, but... At the end of the day, I know that I have a lot of things to be grateful for. And that's allowed me to label that day as my last bad one.
0: Yeah, I love that mindset and that idea of gratitude and and labeling the days and being neutral until you give them a label. I've gotten in the habit, uh, and by the way, I'm married and have two kids and I have very much uh, so much to be grateful for as well. And I start every day with gratitude. I got in the habit of, I learned something I learned from uh, Hal Elrod, who uh, wrote The Miracle Morning. I had him on the podcast a long time back. He talks about, he had a guest on his podcast who talked about making every day the best day of your life. And so I got in the habit of telling people when they ask how I am that that uh, today's the best day of my life. It takes a lot of people off guard. And some people ask, well, why? why what happened? What, why is today so great? And I'll usually say something like, well, I woke up, I'm healthy. I got to play with my kids this morning, the sun's shining. Like, what is there to complain about? It's an awesome day. I'm excited. A lot of people are surprised by that.
1: Well, I love it because... A lot of people are uh, are expecting, like the common word that's used is like, hey, how are you doing? Well, I'm busy. Fine. Yeah, busy. Fine, I'm busy. I'm good. And it's, it's almost like I'm asking you how you're doing, Andy, but I really don't care. Like, just right. to move on to the conversation. And you stop them in your tracks with like, right. the greatest day of my life. And they're like, wow, I have to respond to that. And now you're having a conversation about mindset and gratitude. Oh, I love that response. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So talk to me a little bit more about the importance of gratitude. And how do you make that shift, especially when you feel like there are bad things going on in your life? For instance, you get hit by an SUV, and you're in the hospital for, for days or weeks, or even smaller things that people complain about. How do you make that shift? Why is gratitude so important? And how do we prioritize that in our lives and even in business?
1: Well, I I think we can prioritize it by creating the space for it. So you just mentioned that you do it in the morning. I happen to do it in the evening. And I don't think it takes all that much time. I'm not sure how long your practice is. But for me, I usually do my gratitude practice as I'm brushing my snags, as we call it in our household, our teeth. So as I'm brushing my teeth, I really think through the day, what made it special? Again, micro to macro, and even the struggle, and why why I'm grateful for it It usually comes down to tying back into the values I want to honor. It doesn't take a lot of time. And I think a lot of people are like, ah, I'm too busy for that. I'm too busy for that. So it's to start with it. And over time, I think it it builds momentum. Yesterday I was at a, a coffee shop and I was speaking with AJ Jacobs and he wrote this book that came out last year called thanks a thousand. And What he did is he, it was a gratitude journey, thanking everyone who was responsible for his cup of coffee. And along the way, he thanked a thousand people who were responsible for his cup of Joe in the morning. So from the barista to the people who made the cup, to the truck drivers, to the people who grew the coffee beans. So we were talking because he signed a whole bunch of his books. He autographed a whole bunch of books for the members of my leadership academy because we we feature a book each month. Okay. And so as we we're talking about this, and, and there was a little bit of a production because he's signing all these books. He signed like over 40 books. So the woman next to us was sort of eavesdropping into our conversation. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I just have to say, like you guys have been talking about gratitude. I started a gratitude practice five years ago where I write down three things every day. And yeah. I have this going on over the last five years. And she's like, it's made an incredible difference in my life. And at first, I thought it was a little wonky, a little weird, because a friend asked me to participate in this like gratitude accountability circle. Yeah. But she's like, it's the cornerstone of my day. Like, it's like mm. the anchor that gives me a view and helps me frame my experience through the course of the day. Cause it's so easy to go negative because we're hardwired to pay attention to threats. Yep. So I I just thought that that was like a beautiful exchange. Here I am talking about gratitude with AJ, and and you could feel like people were like eavesdropping because it was one of these cafes where everyone was on top of each other. Yeah. And then she shared her whole gratitude practice. I thought that was like incredible and just the power of it. And I think it's really, it really can be a portal into greater happiness. Yeah, and it, it's such a shift,
0: and it can really can change your life. I mean, I feel it since i started doing that a couple of years ago and writing those things down every morning and and you realize we have so much to be grateful for and it doesn't have to be big things you know it can be that cup of coffee in the morning which i've written down many times this quiet time and space that i have for this cup of coffee that i can enjoy and um you know the ability to write these things down and be at home and you know whatever it is there's so many things to be grateful for and it just and i know it improves my mindset and my happiness and all those things. And I think there are plenty of studies to, to back that up. So do you encourage when you work with, with clients and businesses, do you encourage them to incorporate that in, in a way to help them with their, their lives and their business?
1: Absolutely. I give them two things to sort of think about. One, what I usually recommend is try to find gratitude somewhere throughout the day. Like have a gratitude practice placed somewhere within the day. It could be a bookend of the morning or the bookend right before bed. The other thing I encourage them to do is reconnect with their breath just to slow down, breathe, reflect, think, if you will. So I have something I tell them. I, I go, I want you to grab a PBR, which at first they're like, you want me to grab a Pax Blue Ribbon? And I'm like, yeah. no, 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 no. That's not going to solve your problems. Right. <laughs> uh, but it's more about pausing, breathing, and reflecting or just thinking. Uh, we can call it meditation or micro-mindfulness I think in today's world, as we're now in 2019, I think the leaders or entrepreneurs that will get have the greatest success will understand how to focus on the things that truly matter. You know, there's so many people being busy and, and juggling a lot of different priorities and multitasking and all that jazz. And we know all the data. But our ability to slow down and, and really think and connect, be aware of our self-narrative and mm-hmm. focus in on the things that truly matter in terms of, you know, changing the lives around us, yeah. changing the world, if you will. I think, I think it's crucial. It's so important. So I, I usually try to introduce to them a type of mindfulness practice as well as a gratitude practice.
0: I like it. Um, you mentioned self-narrative. I've had conversations with many people lately who are dealing with self-doubt, limiting beliefs lack of confidence, imposter syndrome, all of these things. As I have more and more meaningful conversations with people, I realize how common and pervasive it is. So how do we, I know this is something you work with people on, how do we slay that self-doubt and really develop more of an abundant mindset and, and really an, a mindset that I can go out and accomplish anything instead of the one that says, oh, I, I'm not capable or
1: worthy of this? Yeah, great question. So I think it is, it's so commonplace, you know. It exists everywhere in an entrepreneurial field, right? There's a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of coaches that have self doubt, and they don't put their goodness out in the world because they're they're trying to make it perfect. But in corporate America, there's a ton of this. Like you know, a lot of my clients, they, you know, I just had a you know call this morning, and she's like, "Yeah, I'm making stuff up. I call it MSUing. MSUing, yeah. uh, you know, just making stuff up about this situation." And what it's doing is it's planting seeds or going back to her own self-narrative that she's not good enough. The reason why she wasn't given an opportunity to present was, you know, she wasn't good enough to present. And in the corporate space, I think it's really hard to workshop this, right? So we do, you know, we do a lot of corporate workshops and we talk about different skills but no one's going to go into a corporate workshop and say hey i want to share with my colleagues here that i have this inner critic right i have this self-doubt and like no one does that so we don't go deep enough so what i try to do on the one-on-one stuff and the stuff i do in my leadership academy is trying to go deeper with some awareness like what is that self-narrative and try to sort of going into the iceberg right the the depths of the iceberg in terms of what it is and why that is. So if it's about judgment, what do we think we're being judged on? Is it looks? Is it smarts? Is it personality? And diving into that. And then pressure testing. All right, well, how much of that self-narrative do you believe? And then trying to come up with stronger stronger statements about who we really are. Because we need we need some counter-conversation or counter-marketing efforts, right? So if the inner critic is a, a marketing effort to tell us that we're not good enough, that we shouldn't step into it or lean into it, we need some other marketing messages that will give us more of a lens of abundance or an attitude of abundance, like, yeah, we can. And we have, you know, I think that's one of the things I try to help people do is that there are times in our lives where we had to recruit an abundant mindset or resilience. And we might have forgotten about these moments, but if we go back in high school or college or even earlier than high school, we all have moments where we fell down, we got back up again, but then we got moving again and we got past that negative self-narrative and we moved forward with courage, vulnerability, and more of an attitude like, I can do this. And Get back to pedaling, if you will, to play off of a cycling analogy. So, I, I think it's so commonplace and really hard to work on in a corporate environment because many corporate environments don't really create a sense of belonging where people feel safe.
0: Yeah, that's psychological safety, and I know some progressive leaders in in big companies. I, I work primarily with uh, big companies doing leadership development, talent development type work. And I know some progressive leaders who are providing that. And I actually just interviewed someone from my other podcast who talks about fear with leaders at this company, which uh, I just think is so progressive and new. And I love it. And I, I like what you said about you know getting to the core of self-doubt and really the fact that a lot of it comes down to fear of judgment. Most of it, right? Is... I would try to do this, but what if I fail and I look stupid or other people think that I'm making the wrong decision or they judge me poorly, and then what will happen to me then? And um, we're all so afraid of that in this world today. And how
1: do we move past that? Well, I think talking to the leaders that you're talking to. So great leaders that have the courage of getting up in front of their guys and gals Mm -hmm. and talking about fear and maybe talking about moments where they have self-doubt or imposter syndrome. Cause I think you're, you're spot on Andy. Like it's it's the whole judgment. And then that narrative just gains momentum. Like, Oh, they're going to judge me. They're going to judge me that I'm not smart. Mm-hmm. If I'm not smart. My job is at risk. If my job is at risk, my role as provider to the family is at risk. And all of a sudden we're living down by the river in a trailer. Right. right. So it's like the narrative becomes so powerful. And so, No one could take a step back and say, well, it's ridiculous, but it's, you know what, if we're feeling it, it feels so real. Mm -hmm. Like our body thinks it's real. So I really do believe this. One way we can change society is to change how we work. We spend so much time at work, right? We Mm -hmm. have all the data as far as how much we sleep, how Mm -hmm. much time we play, but we spend a majority of our life at work. If we can change work, I think we can change our society by showing up as leaders and sharing when we have our moments or when we had our moments and how we got through that to sort of normalize the fact that we all have some self-doubt. But we get through it together. We get through it with empathy. We get through it with courage. And we try to make it normal and be there, like be there for each other, you know, because hopefully wherever corporation we're at, we believe that whatever we're selling, whatever we're producing, is going to make a difference in the world. So if we can harness all the power of our collective unit within our brick and mortar, if you will, we can change more lives. And what a beautiful purpose to have. What a great legacy to leave behind. But it only happens, we only step into our full potential when we can be honest that we're human. And Back before my accident, I used to say, you know, like I was a really good human doer and trying to make a transformation like I was going to be more of a being, like a human being and show mm-hmm. up at work. So as an executive, I try to do those things too, like share moments when I had fear, share a little bit more of like this stuff, my iceberg, but all the stuff that was below the water's surface, all the stuff that's usually hidden away from people. So I could say, hey, you know, I'm human too. When I get up in front of you guys, sometimes I get really nervous because I think you're going to maybe not like what I have to say because I might be pushing your buttons or what have you. I think as you do more of your work, Andy, with the leaders out there, I think slowly but surely we can change how work is done. And with that, I really do believe we can change society. I
0: love that. Last question for you, Michael. This podcast is all about starving our fears and following our dreams and really achieving our true potential because so many people are just not doing what they could potentially be doing. What's one more piece of advice you would give to people that are trying to get
1: the absolute most out of life and really fulfill their true potential? Well, so as a cyclist, I have a lot of cycling metaphors. So my company is Peloton Coaching. So a Peloton, for those that don't know, is a group of cyclists in a bike race. So think the Tour de France. So we can have a personal board of directors or we can have a Peloton. So I use Peloton. And I think it's getting really smart about who you have in your Peloton or who you have in your personal board of directors and making sure that group is diverse. People who can comfort you, people who can push you, people who can be there in a crisis, people who can challenge you and have that diversity at work and in life and and be surrounded by people that really want to help you get to that next level, help you slay that self-narrative that's not feeding you or fueling you. Yeah, Because you know this, like life is not a solo project. It's not a solo bike ride either. No. So we need the right people around us. So being really intentional about who's in our lives, who do we allow into our lives and their energy to make sure that it can bring out the best in us. And then in return, hey, we pass we pass the energy forward, right? Like a great little ripple effect. So I'd say get really smart about who you're hanging with and who you're riding with.
0: Yeah, it's so smart. It's advice I hear more and more and I try to pay attention to. And of course, you know, Jim Rohn famously said that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And Tony Robbins talks about people rising to the level of the peers that they surround themselves with. And, you know, we hear that sometimes, but how much attention do you pay to the people you're surrounding yourself with? Do you have people that can help support you in different areas of your life and are challenging you and raising you up? Because we need those friends and coaches and leaders like you had that physical therapist way back who challenged you to address your fear and get back on that bike. And uh, I know you're grateful that she did. And I'm grateful that I have some of those people in my life and I'm grateful that I have you on the podcast today to, to share some of your wisdom <laughs> with us. So. For anybody listening that wants to get in touch with you, Michael, and find out more about what you're doing, uh,
1: where should they go to do that? So sure, they should go to michaelo'brienshift.com. That's my website, and there they can, you know, they can get a copy of Shift, my book, the story about my last bad day, or sign up for my blog, uh, which is called the Shift Tip. So, but that's the best place to start. Go to michaelo'brienshift.com.
0: Awesome, MichaelO'BrienShift.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been uh, awesome to have you on and to get to know you. And uh, I really do appreciate you spending the time.
1: Well, thank you, Andy. It was great to be on. Love just two guys having a chat, making the world a better place. So I hope your listeners got a pearl or two out of our conversation.
0: Awesome, man. All right, take care.